I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic for The Wall Street Journal. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I write for The New York Times and The New Yorker. Welcome to episode 38 of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Well, Terry... And then there were two. Okay, this is crazy. This is crazy. And then once again, there were two. I know, right, exactly. So I was out on the last podcast because I was away in my homeland on vacation. Uh, And now Peter was supposed to be here today, Peter Marks, and he had a freak accident. He's okay. I reassure all listeners he's fine, but he couldn't make his way to the studio today. So we decided to forge ahead. Uh, just the two of us, or actually three for part of the episode, because we're going to have a special guest today, and that's uh, Adam Feldman, who's the theater and cabaret editor at Time Out New York. We're going to be talking to Adam about American Theater Magazine's new ranking of the most produced plays and playwrights in America. But before we get to that, as we've been doing in recent weeks, we're going to dip once again into the Three on the Isle mailbag, from which we've pulled out three letters that we thought might be interesting to discuss. Uh, First, this question from, I must guess on the pronunciation, Anthony Suppa, who writes, Despite overinflated ticket prices and houses that are often packed, why do most productions struggle to turn a profit? And do you think there is a way to reduce the cost of putting on a Broadway production without sacrificing quality? That's really a good question, and uh, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is it depends on what you think a Broadway production is. If you think it is something that has to have bells and whistles and a movie star, uh, basically the answer to your question is no. Uh, These things cost what they cost, and between the, the front money, which is priced in for the TV or movie star, and uh, the, the, the publicity, which is the big cost of putting on a Broadway show, uh, you're not going to be able to do that on the cheap. On the other hand, you don't have to have bells and whistles. Uh, some of the most extraordinary, unforgettable productions in the history of Broadway, going all the way back to the original production of Our Town in Orson Welles' Julius Caesar, uh, straightforward to shows that we've all seen uh, that have had extremely simple decor, uh, simple and straightforward. Uh, It isn't necessary to have these kinds of things. The show itself can be the star. And although it's producers have come to the conclusion that you can't open a new play without a TV or movie star. And if that's true, well, it's true. But if it's not true, if the play can be the star, and the most spectacular uh, example of that most recently has been what the Constitution means to me, uh, a show done in a very simple set uh, by a, an actor playwright who is not extremely well known, uh, which was just took over Broadway for a few weeks then the whole thing adds up differently. Uh, I think so it become it comes down to a question of expectations. At least that's the way I see it. Uh, I okay, I I uh, I don't agree there because I mean I agree what you're saying is true, but I don't think it's quite what the question is. The problem is that shows and the question seems to be really about Broadway, so that's what I'm going to talk about. The problem yeah. with Broadway is that even with that the bells and whistles and the stars, many many shows do not make their money back, uh, and which is not a comment on their artistic quality. That's something else. So I'm just talking about making money, and, and they don't. Only about 
30% of Broadway shows recoup, which is a really low number. Um, and the reason is, and it's really easy, it's because the costs to put on a show on Broadway are higher than anywhere else. And the usual comparison is with London, where even on the uh, putting on a show on the West End is considerably cheaper than on Broadway, which is why so many shows start on the West End. They're developed there, and they're the tryout, basically the West End is the out-of-town tryout for Broadway now, for many Broadway shows, because it is so much cheaper. And I think it was Sonia, Sonia Friedman, the producer, who had talked with Sid once, that everything is more expensive in New York. And that means uh, the cost of moving uh, and, and mounting the sets and the equipment, uh, the salaries for the stagehands, the designers, the marketing people, the actors are higher in New York. The theater rents are higher in New York. And then there are union contracts on Broadway that are very much completely unflexible as opposed to what's happening on the West End. Now, the issue of union on Broadway is a very tricky one, and I really don't feel like equipped to talk about it because I don't know enough of the ins and outs, but I know that it's a very common complaint on the part of the producers, again, the producers, that the union costs are way too high. Uh, but of course, the producer also taking their share, so they're completely not innocent in there. So I think the issue of the cost, and I don't know, I honestly don't know how to lower those costs of putting on a show in New York. Uh, I have no idea how. It seems that they're so built in and so ingrained at this point that even what the constitution means to me, I had four people and no set. I mean, a very simple basic set that didn't move. Um, and it made it, its money back. It's a very rare case. Uh, I, I am at a loss of explaining how a Broadway show now can make money without, like, think about The Prom, Terry. I think it's a musical we both liked. Uh, yes. it didn't, it didn't make its money back, I don't think. It didn't have stars. Uh, it had really good reviews across the board. I mean, I think it was a show that everybody really liked and it's still didn't make money. And that is just heartbreaking to me. Well, musicals are a different proposition. Yes. They, they are, most of them are inherently much yes. more expensive. They've just got a bigger nut. And The Prom was a bells and whistles show. I mean, mm, it didn't yes. have fireworks going off, but, you know, it wasn't a show like, like uh, 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 Fun Home, say, which is a small-scale show that happened to be done mm -hmm. in one of Broadway's small-scale theaters. Yes. And it went over because the show was the draw. People had been talking about it. Uh, it had had a highly successful off-Broadway run at off the public. Uh, it, it got the buzz. Um, mm -hmm. The pe people in the business tell me that the, the big cost that people outside the business don't see is promotion. That's the thing that kills you. That's the thing that, that the attempt to stand out in a crowd and that crowd in Broadway consists mainly of musicals, which are the shows that out of town theater goers want to see. They're the ones they've heard about. Mm -hmm. uh, how do people from out of town decide how to go to a show? They may have seen the Tonys. Um, they may have read about it in a magazine. But basically what they're saying is what's the big musical? What should I go to? Mm -hmm. uh, there was a time within our lifetimes, Elizabeth, in the history of Broadway, 
when a straight play could create that kind of buzz. Uh, the example that I always give is Who's Afraid of Virginia mm-hmm. Woolf? Yeah. A four-actor, one-set play that opened cold on Broadway, no uh, out-of-town tryout, no advance notice, and it became instantaneously the show that everybody felt they had to see. So I guess, in a sense, the answer to, to Mr. Sibba's question is... Um, we need to have shows that everybody feels like everybody feels like they really must see, and you can't guarantee that. The only thing that you can guarantee is the presence of a TV or movie star. That's your flop insurance. Uh, a lot of people will go to shows simply because person X is in them. Or, or if you have, or if the star is a branded property like To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Where also you could argue that Aaron Sorkin is the second star in the show. The first star is the property itself, the, yeah. the book, and the second star is Aaron Sorkin. I think pretty much at this point you could have almost anybody playing Atticus Finch, almost anybody, and the show would still work, would still sell as is. Um, and, and that's probably what's going to happen yes. now that the show, the show has become a commodity mm-hmm. and will we'll we'll run on that basis. I, to me, the answer to this is don't worry about Broadway. Don't go to Broadway. You don't have to go to Broadway. Indeed, you don't have to go to New York to see a show of the highest possible quality. Uh, but a lot of people, the only shows they see in their lives are Broadway shows or touring shows that came from Broadway. That's true. And I got to say, they're they're missing the point, I think. And... Uh, I wish that were not so, but uh, the world has changed. Uh, the economics of Broadway have changed. The Tony Awards have changed. They used to be one of the, the chief ways of publicizing straight plays, excerpts from which were always performed on the Tonys. Now they're not. Um, yeah. Uh, there are a lot of problems built into the system. It's true. Well, actually, that kind of like that's a good segue into our next question: uh, where to find the good stuff? Uh, the next question is from Danielle, and he he wrote, uh, "I'm planning a theater trip to New York. <laughs> I'm not sure when that letter was written, by the way. So maybe he's done the trip already, but I'm sure Dan will come back." Um, most of the resources for finding shows are for the big Broadway and off-Broadway shows. What are some good resources for finding more shows that are off the bin path? Okay, that is a really good question because it is actually really not easy. And it's a question that I get a lot from friends in New York who have access to the local press and all that and still are not sure because there's, there's a lot of shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, and then off, off and beyond <laughs> Um, is is huge. So I would say basically, um, actually, uh, I'm going to start with recommending a, a good gateway is the Time Out New York listings that you know our guest Adam uh, oversees. It's it, it's a good start, but I think um, one of the ways to do it as well is to sign up to spot the, the companies or the places that you that that do good work and get on their mailing list so you know when their next shows are coming. And they're not usually on a regular season schedule like the bigger houses. So you kind of have to keep your eyes peeled for that. And the best way is, yes, to sign up for their mailing list. And I would say sign up for Ars Nova, the Bushwick Star, Soho Rep. Uh, All those companies do great work uh, and you will get notice of their shows ahead of time and you can buy. And they often have... Really cheap tickets. Like one of my favorite plays of the past um, 
few weeks or months with a play called Eureka Day. And I think it got really a little lost in, you know, the din. Uh, but after I saw it, I sent like emails to a whole bunch of friends. And I said, you guys have got to see. And they all loved it. And the tickets were $25. Uh, and when you see that, you really... But if you're on the company's mailing list, okay, you get that. And I think it's just easy to take a risk on a $25 ticket, even if you don't know who the playwright is, if you don't know really what it's about, but it's a company you trust, like Soho Rep, for instance. Okay, well, $25, all right, yeah, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna gamble on that. It's just much easier than $200 on Broadway. I'd say that $25 is probably the rollover point, mm -hmm. where is, if it's below that, people are willing to take a chance, and if it's above that, they're yeah. less willing. Mm -hmm. I was really interested in hearing your answer to this, Elizabeth, because I'm not very good at this. I am in the business. They come to me. Uh, most of the finds, the, the companies that I've gone to see, the shows I've gone to see that were off the beaten path, I, the most spectacular example of which is Bedlam, uh, I found out about because somebody in the business said to me, have you heard about X? Mm. And it was somebody I trusted. And the answer was no, I hadn't. And uh, when it's somebody you trust, somebody whose taste you trust, uh, and you've got a free night, then maybe you will say, okay, I'll go down there, I'll see this show, I'll see what will happen. And I'll be the first to admit to you that this is something that I do not do as much as I should. Uh, I, I don't have as much time as I wish, I don't have as much space as I wish. I can't follow, and, and also uh, in my normal career, which has been a little bit curtailed because of my wife's illness, mm -hmm. I'm covering a lot of shows out of town as well. Right. And that's really tricky. I mean, over time, you learn how to find where the good theater is out of town. Right. But I, I, what you said, I think, is worth saying again. It takes effort on the part of the person who's looking. Uh, you have to say, all right, I want to have more theater in my life, and I'm willing to do certain kinds of things in order to get it. Um, that was what happened to me when I started covering out-of-town theater. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first started it, I had no idea what to do. I started in Chicago because my best friend lives in Chicago. Uh, but the more I saw, the more I found out about, the more I heard about, the more I knew. And after three or four years, uh, I learned how to find where interesting shows were pretty much everywhere in America. Mm -hmm. you can Anybody can do that, and they can do it in New York as well. But it requires a real commitment going in. You gotta want it. It's true, and and actually, uh, another thing is like you can, if you're on social media, you can start following um, someone whose taste you tend to trust, uh, a, a critic, and just see when they're recommending. I'm not on Facebook, but I'm on Twitter, and uh, people often ask, well, you know, I mean, I often post about what I like and what I would recommend. So if you follow people you whose taste you tend to trust. Um, I think that's also a, a good start, but it definitely requires a bit of, of legwork uh, because the offer, but you know, but this, it's the same in music. There's so much offer in, in, in pop music now that you need someone, you, well, well, you need people to kind of help you kind of curate for you. Uh, right. it's, it's just really daunting, the amount of stuff that's out there. And same for TV. I mean, it's just uh, in theater in New York is the same. Um, Every Thursday on my blog, terryteachout.com, I put up a posting called So You Want to See a Show, which is simply a guide to the shows that I have reviewed that are running, that are still open, with links to the show's website and to my review. 
so that anybody who wants to see what I've liked in the past week or two or three or the past couple of months, all you got to do is go see me on Thursday and you get an answer to that for what it's <laughs> worth. Right. <laughs> yeah. And now we've got a question from a fellow named Gavin Needham, which I, I quite like because it's almost metaphysical in its nature. Uh, he asks, what do you think about theater as a pure entertainment venture? Many plays are written to describe the human condition or to tell us a deeper truth about ourselves. When this happens, though, the plays sometimes feel pompous or stuffy. When you strip away any need to have deeper meaning and just want to entertain an audience for two hours, on the other hand, you seldom go wrong. How do you feel about that? Gavin, I think there, there may be a false alternative built into this. <laughs> yes. Because I really believe devoutly that comedy is the most powerful way to make serious statements about human nature. Uh, on the other hand, I think you, you, Gavin, are also talking about purely frivolous comedy, farce comedy, um, uh, which itself can make statements about the vanity of human wishes. But uh, there's nothing in the world wrong with sitting in a theater and laughing for two hours. If, if, if that doesn't make you a a better, happier, lighter person, uh, I don't know what will. I'll never forget the first time I saw the, the greatest farce of the 20th century, Noises Off. Um, it was a production in Washington, D.C. I'd heard of Noises Off, but I'd never seen it. And I laughed so hard for so long, I thought I was going to rupture myself. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that is a branch of art one that deserves to be taken very seriously, the ability to make people laugh like that. Uh, that's, a, that's a big deal in life. Uh, so I'm, I've got no problems with theater as pure entertainment. And I also think that sometimes that pure entertainment is not quite such pure entertainment as you think. Um, I don't think that King Lear is intrinsically better uh, than uh, Twelfth Night. Uh, I, I just don't. Um, comedy, tragedy can be, very often are, two different ways of saying the same things about human nature. So that's my immediate reaction to that question. I, I would also say that um, you have to really rethink the idea of entertainment because I would argue that a King Lear that's where you're completely involved in every minute of the play where you don't see time fly, is entertaining. I, I count that as entertainment. Yeah. Um, I mean, entertainment doesn't mean that it has to be, f I mean, funny. I, to me, entertainment means my attention was held and it was completely focused on what was happening, no matter what it is, for an hour or two or eight or however long it lasts. That, to me, is entertainment. And the, the thing that I'm really, the, that I hate the most is the quote-unquote like deeper meaning plays that are very self-conscious about being a message play. That is the worst to me. I just can't oh. stand them. Uh, when the message like is- Like a card sharp trying to force a card on you. Oh, it's just the worst. Uh, the best are the ones that are smart and make you think. And sometimes you don't even realize actually that they're doing that to you. And it's only afterwards you're like, oh my God, that, that, that's what was going on. Um, I, I went to, uh, oh God, what was that? Um, I saw Lulu at the, at the Met a few years ago. Um, and I remember the first, I think there was only one, I can't remember how many intermission, maybe there was one or two. Uh, the first one I thought like, oh my God, this is so trying. I don't think 
I don't know that I'm going to make it through this. It's four hours. I, I, I just don't know if I'm going to make it. And then I thought like, I'm here. I've got to see this. I'm going to make it through it. And by the end of the four hours, I would say I was entertained because my attention, the show gradually completely held my attention. Uh, and yes, I, so I would argue that that Lulu was entertaining. But at the same time, well, yeah. I will really go to bat for like a completely stupid French Boulevard farce because the mechanics of it are so brilliant uh, that... Yes. I will completely just love the construction of it. That's where the smarts are, in the construction of this completely purely mechanical construct. You're making me think, The construction of Elizabeth, a construct that, my, that makes no sense. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, my favorite couplet from a Broadway song is relevant to this. It's from the song That's Entertainment yes. by Deeps and Schwartz, uh, where they're talking about how it's all entertainment. And uh, the line is, some great Shakespearean scene where a ghost and a prince meet and everyone ends in mincemeat. Mm -hmm. That is also entertainment. Yes. Um, so true. Wow. Okay. You know what? No. Oh, that was, that Terry, was fun. I have to push you away because now it's time for me to shine. So uh, why don't you go do something else? Well, <laughs> okay. We have to tell listeners we're having like some issues with our technical stuff because it's September. We're back and it's not like anything is going on in theater right now and we don't need all hands on deck. So uh, you, you're going right. to... Uh, but before before we do yes. that, though, we should remind you, listeners, thanks to our three correspondents, and let me remind you here, as usual, write to oh, us yes. at three on the aisle. Yes, write to us at three on the aisle at gmail.com. Be sure to spell out three, and uh, we'll happily consider using your letter on a future podcast. Now, Elizabeth, this is not a revolution that is going on here. Um, as, as Elizabeth mentioned earlier, we are going to have to make a last-minute adjustment in the show due to technical circumstances beyond our control. I am taping my end of today's podcast from Connecticut, and it seems that because of a glitch in our control board in New York, we can only record two people at the same time. Just for today, just so for I'm today. Gonna, right, right. So I'm going to bow out for the next few minutes, hand the mic over to Elizabeth in New York, who will introduce our guest. Elizabeth? And I am now, you know, I finally succeeded in kicking Terry out <laughs> and taking over this podcast, which now we was can my talk year, about Terry. my year-long plan. I succeeded in taking control of the <laughs> spaceship. I feel like like Kate Janeway, and she's kicked out all of the crew on on that USS Enterprise, whatever number <laughs> seventy-three that she was piloting. Um, it's just me and our guest, or my guest, yes, Adam Feldman. Adam and I go way back. We used to sit next to each other at Time Out New York when That's I was toiling there. And uh, you have now reached the age of consent at Time Out. I almost. It depends on the state. But um, <laughs> yes, this, is, this month is my 16th anniversary as a staff writer at Time Out. So Adam, you're like, I would say, I think, I think we can say you are one of the most outsized personalities on the critical side. <laughs> I don't know. If, I, I don't know if that's true. I can't say that of myself. If you say so. I, I think so. I think so. I think right, you're the I'll only one who's... Uh, trilling on a regular basis at club coming <laughs> uh and you're also also the president of the new york drama critic circle that's true and you've been there for 15 years i think 15 years i think it's been 15 okay. years you, you were like the duarte of, <laughs> of the drama critic circle um, um yeah. always re-elected with 93.4 percent of the with enormous, Votes. enormous popular support. Incredible, incredible. Okay, so we're gonna dis. Uh, we, we're gonna 
uh, talk about actually something that's really fascinating to me because it's the most produced plays and playwrights in the U.S. The list, the American Theater Magazine releases the list, the ranking every year, and it seems like every year, Lauren Gunderson is the most produced playwright. Who? <laughs> no, exactly, right? That's uh, a setup. No, actually, yeah. no, it's terrible. She is incredibly prolific and she's wonderful, and we never see her work in New York. Yes, and she had, what was it? She had 33 plays produced last year around the country, and uh, none of them were in New York, as far as I know. Well, productions, because I think she had 11 right, different no, no, places. Sorry, right. I mean 33 productions right. of her plays. Um, but I, a few years ago, she did have a play, about five years ago, she had a play called Bauer uh, that I saw. But other than that, she just, for whatever reason, does not bring her work to New York City. And I actually, I interpret this as a, as a sign of health. That, no, no, that American theater is not dependent on New York as a make or break city to make a living as a playwright. Well, right. And uh, there are always a few. It's interesting. Most of the plays on this list, we should say, are plays that were prominently produced in New York City. So right. many of these shows have been on Broadway or in the major off-Broadway uh, venues. And so I have seen most of these plays. But then there are always a few others, too, that just don't seem intended for New York audiences, not just Gunderson's plays, but also things like this year there's there's a production of uh, Ken Ludwig's adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express, of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. Which I did not even realize existed, I no, have to say. No, neither did I. And a few years ago, Lee Hall did an adaptation of Shakespeare in Love that was mm -hmm. one of the most produced shows in the country, and it just wasn't meant for us. So since, we, okay, so we started talking about the, uh, the play. So the, the most produced play in the U.S. was Lucas Nath, A Doll's House Part Two, as I like to call it, which had a respectable run in New York. Not, nothing great, but respectable with, with Laurie Metcalf. Uh, and he's now doing incredible across the country. Why, right. why do you think that and is? It was, well, it was the number one most produced play last year yes. as well. And uh, we should say that last year it was a phenomenon. It had just come off of its mm -hmm. uh, initial run, and it, uh, it had 27 productions last year. This coming season, it will have 12 productions, which is a lot less than 27, but which is still enough to put it on top of this list. And there are a lot of reasons for that. First of all, it's a very good play, I think. Uh, it was very well received on Broadway. And also, not incidentally, it has two things going for it. It has brand name recognition from A Doll's House, so it, mm -hmm. it seems like a classy, classical theater type of enterprise. And also, uh, it's very small and easy to produce. There are four actors in it. There's no real set well, to speak of. Um, so so anyone can do it. Well, well, well that's obviously not a, a, a one of the big criteria because the second most produced play is actually a big play. It's The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime uh, by Simon Stevens, actually an adaptation of the Mark Hayden book. Uh, and the way we saw it on Broadway was like a complete like whiz-bang of a show. I, I actually wonder, I would love to see a completely different production of it and I think it can be done in a much more subdued way maybe but it, it's a big play it's a big cast it's a right but that's more the I mean and, and Curious Instant has been on this list for the past mm -hmm. three years running uh, I mean it was an enormous success on Broadway it was yes. one of the longest running play, uh, play straight plays in uh, 21st century and it, it has enormous crossover appeal. It's a very uh, sympathetic play to a lot of audiences today. So, But I think that is more the exception than the rule. If you look down the list this year, uh, and we can do it, there, there's a musical or two which are inevitably larger, but mostly it's, I mean, 
What have well, we got what's, here? what's interesting to me, actually, that when you say musical or two, the musical that's popping up at, at number four is really not one I would have expected. I would have expected like Dear Evan Hansen or something like that, or, or even uh, Be More Chill or something like but that. But are they allowed but, to produce Dear Evan Hansen yet? I mean, it, it, uh, I don't yeah. know. Maybe not. You're right. Um, but what's popping up is Bright Star. Yes, Bright Star, Steve surprisingly. Steve Martin and Eddie Brickell. Uh, and Bright Star, although Bright Star was not a show that I particularly loved uh, in its Broadway incarnation, it also has that big name brand recognition. And Steve mm -hmm. Martin is a very well-known, and to a lesser extent, Edie Brickell. But Steve Martin, in particular, is a very well-known writer and, and public figure and beloved personality. And so uh, when you're putting this on a season and you're trying to get an audience in and you're doing a new musical that no one's heard of, it really helps to have the name Steve Martin behind it. Mm -hmm. um, and I also wonder... We were talking about productions. You know, I I wonder in retrospect whether some of what I disliked about Bright Star on Broadway may have had to do with the tone of the direction, which I I felt like it didn't really have a consistent sense of itself as a story. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I wonder if if other productions have solved some of the problems that I thought it had in the Broadway production. I, I you know I, it's actually a show that I can really see tra traveling well, uh, as opposed to some of. Other musical. Now, a name that pops up twice on that list of the most produced play, that's a really interesting name to me, and that's Lauren Yee, who's a young playwright. She has two shows on this list. Uh, one I saw here, uh, I think it was at the smaller house at the Atlantic. It was called The Great Leap, and it was, I was not overly impressed, but it's, it's, it's fine. Um, but the other one uh, is called Cambodian Rock, uh, Band. Rock Band. It's coming here uh, to Signature in January or February. Yeah, I early think, next year. Yeah. Next year. And I'm really looking forward to it. And I love that she's there twice. I heard great things about Cambodian rock band from its run in Chicago. And mm -hmm. I think that uh, this is a rare case where there's a, a major sort of serious, what we would call like, quote unquote, serious new off-Broadway type play mm -hmm. uh, that is on this list before it comes to New York. Uh, and that is... Uncommon. Most of these other plays, as we said, have been to New York before. Um, this one it has not yet arrived. I think part of what we're seeing is a hunger for new voices and for voices that represent communities of color, that uh, women's voices, and a lot of the ones on this list. Not just oh yeah, um, not just uh, Lorne, right. but also you've got uh, Sarah Delap on here. You've got Lar Larissa Fasthorse, who's a Native American playwright, mm -hmm. for a play called The Thanksgiving Play. You've got Jocelyn Bio for um, Schoolgirls. Um, Sarah Delap. Sarah Delap. You've got Dom uh, Dominic Morriso for Pipeline. Um, so there's definitely. I think we're pretty much at, at parity in terms of gender <laughs> representation, actually, on this or list. Or more. Or more, I, yes. Yeah. And so, so that's an interesting development. And I think that's in response to a lot of conversations that people in the theater community have mm -hmm. been having about, uh, about that, I, um, that disparity that you mentioned. And I think it's also reflecting uh, a change uh, in the makeup of artistic directors mm. across the country. There's been kind of a big turnover uh, I'm not sure maybe it's too recent to be reflected in this list, but I think it's really starting to be reflected. There's been a, a turnover of artistic directors in major regional theaters, major houses around the country. There's a lot of people doing great work, and I think they're picking different plays, and now it's reflecting this kind of list. I find it really, really 
exciting, actually. But I agree. But before we get too carried away with any, with uh, uh, yeah, oh my well, god, right, it's no, so great. I mean, you know, before we before we assign too much value to the particulars oh. on this list, just to put it in perspective, this list is assembled by American Theatre Magazine, and it's assembled from three hundred and eighty so odd, you know, uh, three hundred eighty seven yes. uh, season announcements, which. Add up to twenty two hundred and eight hundred and eighty productions. So when we're talking right. about even you know, Lucas Nath's Doll's House Part Two is the number one list. That is twelve productions out mm-hmm. of twenty two hundred and eighty productions. So it still represents le- half a percent. The most produced plays yes. are still half a percent of what's being right. uh, produced. And so any one of these things, I, I mean, one reason. I mean, when you look down these lists, and this happens every year, you might be surprised that so many of them are new plays that have very recently played in New York and not things like Arthur Miller classics or uh, Edward Albee or, or uh, things like that. Um, but I think it is because those plays are done consistently, but they're spread out among the oeuvres mm-hmm. of those writers. They don't have the same small right. pop that separates them uh, into, into a list like this, a list that it still represents a fairly small proportion of the actual number of productions. No, no, I, 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 I completely agree. But I think what's, what's encouraging is that it's kind of showing a path forward in a way. Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, that is happening, or I find it really a sign of health for 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 our industry uh, because the, the, we, the other people are so good at hang ringing and feeling ostracized, <laughs> and oh my God, the Tonys have the worst ratings, which. Apparently, it's not even that behind the Emmys, as I just discovered. <laughs> so, but no, but we're the one just always like covering our head in ashes and whining that nobody pays attention to us. But I think it's actually a really fairly healthy situation in terms of representation compared to other, certainly compared to Hollywood. Well, yeah, and and the list represents a certain amount of adventurousness, which mm-hmm. is one thing yes. I, I, in preparation for coming on today, I look back at the past few years of lists and some of the shows that have made it onto these lists, I found really surprising and encouraging. Um, shows like Mr. Burns and Electric Play. Yes. Uh, or, uh, or Boom. I don't know if you remember that play from, from Ars Nova. Was that? Uh, no, I don't. Oh, it's, it's. Boom? Yeah, it's. I, it, I don't even, it was <laughs> I don't amazing. even know what that is. Right. It didn't make much of a splash really at the time, although I thought it was very memorable. Uh, and we'll talk about it later, but it's, right. I'll explain it to you. But it, it has a terrific premise. <laughs> um, it takes place in this future dystopian. Anyway, um, but that was the number one most produced play. And I forget which season, like 2009-10 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But but it popped up to the list because it's a really interesting, weird play that caught the imaginations of the people programming their seasons. And I, we're still seeing that with a bunch of these. Cambodian rock band is a really interesting choice for these, you know, for these companies. The Wolves, um, even Doll's House Part Two is—it's a spiky play. Oh, well, oh. it wasn't for you, but I—but it's a spiky play. It's not—it's not a—it's not, not a boring play. I—I'll take Ken Ludwig. <laughs> I would love to see Ken Ludwig's Murder on that. the Orient Express. I love Lemmy a tenor. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure his treatment of uh, murder on the earnings is just like that. It would actually uh, lend itself to that. Well, also um, worth uh, worth pointing out, if we're going to go into the wh- fine print, that this list does not include uh, Shakespeare plays. Yes. And it does not include productions of A Christmas Carol of all right. kinds, because they dominate. But it's interesting to me that the I'm going to, you know, like use the, the quote-unquote legacy playwrights Older ones on the list are Tennessee Williams. Now, if we look at the playwrights list, Tennessee Williams, August Wilson, um, Neil Simon, 
I, I kind of love that trilogy, actually. It's pretty <laughs> much everything I love about theater is this trilogy. Um, I'm, I, I think we're due for a Neil Simon like revival. Oh, I think so, too. It's completely happening. You know that. Actually, we're, we're seeing it like right now. Like There's a Neil Simon revival. And I think the only other person happening. on the list other than those three is Sam Shepard, which may be mm-hmm. in response to his recent death. Um, right. So, so yeah. I mean, there's no Albie. There's no Miller. There's no O'Neill. Um it's it is very interesting that way and not to mention do, there's no do, Moliere do, do you get well yeah <laughs> I'm not gonna hold my breath for that one do, do you do, do you get a sense that we're at a, a kind of turning point in terms of the kind of makeup of theater uh we may be I mean there was a time when when plays by Strindberg and Ibsen and Shaw would be revived on a rotating basis on on Broadway, where it was, just, it was just part of everyone's experience, and uh, I don't think we're there anymore. And why should we be? It's it's many decades on. Uh, I think people, my 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 sense of it, and I, I guess I was alluding to this before, but my sense is that those things are still produced. It's just mm-hmm. an individual play by any of those authors is not going to be right. produced enough in a given season to pop into a list of this kind. But I think those people are probably still overall getting a number of productions. Um, they're just sort of spread out. Um, and they're they're less relevant to most people, and most and most most cities now don't have the kind of classical repertory structure. Oh my even, god, that's, that's a conversation for another. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, show. it's relevant to this. Like, even yeah. New York doesn't have that many. I mean, we we had things like the Pearl Theater Company that have have ceased to exist because their market is not what it was for that. Mm-hmm. The, I I feel like the the market for classics right now, like people, I think, are more interested in. In directors that are were really going to have a go at it, instead of doing what the pro was doing, which right. was very straightforward, very classical stagings of older plays. Yeah, and also most of those plays have larger casts, and that makes them harder to produce, and not especially when you're selling a play that's 120 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I mean, you can do, and this is why people do it constantly. You can do Miss Julie. Uh, by Strindberg because it has right. three people in it, and right. you can and it's about you know gender and class and you know it's a, it's, a, it's full of sex and psychology and it's all sort of sexy to do, mm-hmm. um, but most of those other plays are not, <laughs> not in that way. What do you mean like Strindberg is <laughs> Strindberg Strindberg is still edgy, but you know putting the sex back in right, but you know you can do but you can do. You, you can do these plays every once in a while, especially, I mean, I think people still do the importance of being earnest because it's still funny, still holds up. And, and, but you don't do anything else by Oscar Wilde. No, you know? no, there's no, e- even here, actually, I can't yeah. remember the last time we saw. Almost never. We had, uh, you know, yeah, we, we had a, we had a Broadway revival of a different one a few years ago, but that but you really, you really have to go searching around. We had a Salome and on Broadway and we had a, uh, there was another do, one too. There's do, a, do, do you think that's a good thing that some parts of the canon seem to be disappearing from the collective memory of theater goers? I have really mixed feelings about that. I have very mixed I, feelings about it too, but not everything can survive. There's only enough room for some things, you know? It's a limited economy. You can't, I mean, I, I like to think that these, the better ones of these places, I mean, the, it's the small, it's the side ones that will fall away ultimately. Right. And that would be happening with Shakespeare if we weren't so fetishistic about Shakespeare. Uh, 
you know, there's no reason we should really. I'm really glad to hear you say that, actually, because. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, Shakespeare is great. Shakespeare, Shakespeare, but, um, but mostly, there's no one would be doing half of these plays if it were not for the lingering brand value of the name William Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I mean, more than half of these plays. People would be doing only five of these plays. Five, absolutely. Yeah. Which one? Which one would it be? People would be doing Midsummer Night's Dream, and they'd yes. be doing Twelfth Night, and they would be doing uh, Macbeth and Hamlet and Lear. So let's say what it is. That's it. Othello, maybe. So Romeo and Juliet. Let's let's give it as generous as ten plays, you know. <laughs> but they, there are a lot of them that no one would touch. Um, so, so that's which is. I mean, and, and Shakespeare is still the most produced playwright in, in the do, country. Do you, do you think there's a, is there a playwright or a play that you think deserves to be seen more across the country that we've seen here in New York? That if you had to tell artistic directors across the country. You know, someone who would be on that list. So I would say Mary Jane by Amy Herzog and uh, Claire Barron's Dance Nation. Um, those are two shows that I absolutely loved um, mm -hmm. from the past couple of years. And, uh, and I would love to see them around the country. And I think they would play. I mean, mm -hmm. this isn't a list that in past years has featured right. things like Mr. Burns or things like Circle Mirror Transformation. I mean, it's, not, it's, well, it's an adventurous enough list. Well, I, I, I feel also that uh, if... The Wolves are going to be in there. Dance Nation could certainly yeah. be in there. And and Mary Jane is actually, in appearance, a lot more straightforward Definitely. than these other plays and really deserve... I, I actually am surprised that that play has not had longer legs. I mean, I would have assumed it would actually show up because it feels so... I don't like that word, but, but relevant to now and to the way we deal with so many things that we have to deal with. Very but much. at the same time, I wonder if I was I wasn't warped by that incredible performance that we were lucky to see that Carrie Coon gave in the. It was a gorgeous performance, but I don't. I think that the play permits it and 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 opens itself up to it. I mean, there are a lot of gifted actors around the country who would love to have a chance to give that performance, or you know, to give their version of that performance. Right. And it's a it's a part that can be so beautiful. It's such a beautiful play. I mean, I I don't. I'm not a programmer, so I can't say why it, it's not being programmed. I maybe it doesn't look like it has. Actually, in general, incident. Amy Herzog does not show up on those on that playwright list, and I'm surprised by that because mm -hmm. she's one. Any Annie Baker and Amy Herzog, who are probably two of the hottest female playwrights of the past few years, I don't think uh, show up on that like list. I feel like she was on it a few years ago, and I'm trying to remember uh, when for Four Thousand Miles, I think. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that was, but that's again a very uh, cost-effective. Well, show. what's interesting, in, too, is that so, uh, most of those plays do not seem to have legs. Like, they pop up. Like, what's interesting about A Doll's House Part 2 <laughs> is that it's, it's been there two years in a row. Right. And it could, well, maybe not, because it's shrinking, as you, as you said, uh, could be there next year. But they don't seem to have legs. Like, nothing seems to have captured the imagination where people are like, oh, I need to do this, and we're going to do it, and now everybody's going to see it. Well, yeah, and it, I don't know. There are a few shows that, that that pop along from list to list when you're when you're looking at them at the past few years. Right. Peter and the Starcatcher was on for a while, right? And uh, and there are other things like that. And then there are classics that that sometimes rear their heads on even this list. Uh, mm -hmm. Glass Menagerie, Raisin in the Sun. Mm -hmm. Those ones make it to the list sometimes. Right. Um, but, but of the new ones, I feel like we get a lot of like 
temporary excitement on something hot that does not stay hot. And then there's a new flavor of the month coming to replace it. That's the thing that unnerves me a little bit about those lists is that I'm not sure we're, we're seeing someone or something with staying power. That, that concerns me a bit because I, I know there's been a lot of talk recently about the golden age of American playwriting right now. And I think right now we have a lot of really, really, really good plays and really, really good playwrights. But I don't think we're having someone absolutely brilliant. I think we That's have a lot of brilliant playwrights. I think really we have really me, really you know, good, I, but I, I don't think we have I think it's very hard classic. to separate out that staying power from the cultural currency that these plays enjoyed at a different time in American cultural history. Well, so true. you know, it's like if you you had a Tennessee Williams or you had a, they were mass culture stars, and their and then their plays were made into movies, That's and true. it just it reinforced itself in ways that we don't have now for these for these plays, um, and so uh, I, I, time will tell. Well, Adam, thank you so much. We thank need to have you over more. Me. I would love I, to. As I, as I take control of the soul mic again. I feel sad uh, that this uh, was uh, only uh. like one on the aisle and a plus one. But I know. I, we, you know what? It was a crazy day. It was just like a, a day of mishap with people getting injured on the job. <laughs> it's a dangerous it was, profession. It's a dangerous profession. I, I feel like I'm Paper always, cuts from playbills. I have like backaches from sitting <laughs> and... Um, but okay, but before you go, I want to ask you to tell me about uh, a show that you've seen recently and that you would recommend, or, or not. Show that I've seen recently and I would recommend. Um, does Darren Brown's show count? The yes. Uh, Darren Brown's Secret? So uh, Darren Brown is a magician, and I happen to really like magic shows. I uh, am a sucker for magic shows. I love them. Uh, and Darren Brown is a very good magician, very good stage magician. But you know, he's a kind of magician that is at the bottom of my list of magicians that I like, which is he's a mentalist. Ah, yes. Um, and, um, and mentalism for me is, is pretty boring after you have seen a lot of mentalists, because it turns out that there are only a few basic kinds of trick that you can do and they all kind of start running into each other in your mind but I after feel the same way about card stuff. tricks well yeah that's sort of true but card tricks um there's a there's just a there's an immediacy to the magic in card tricks you're watching something and, and right. just the skill involved in the manipulation is so exciting to me it's it's so uh, shocking but, to but me. the skill with i haven't seen uh this show, I mean, I saw it off-Broadway a couple of years ago when he was at, at the Atlantic, but the thing, the skill with Darren Brown is his gift of gab. Right, but, it, but the gears are usually so much more visible to me in mentalism because I just see them pretending not to know the answer they already know and fishing mm. around, quote-unquote, you know, but guessing, being like, are you? And, uh, <laughs> and really, they know the, the answer from the beginning, and they're just pretending, and that's very boring to me. Um, so, okay, I'm, I'm uh, more naive, so I'm always um, dazzled. Well, you know, I, I've seen too many magic shows, is the, is the short version. But uh, that, that's one reason that I, I, am, I was particularly delighted with Darren Brown's version of this, because I think that he does that stuff uh, so much better than most mentalists I've seen do, do it. Do, do you think Darren Brown has... Darren Brown is on Broadway right now. Yes. He was at the Atlantic uh, Theater Company on his previous... It's the same show. Mm -hmm. um, do, do you think Darren Brown, uh, he's, one, is theater, and does he, should he be on Broadway? Uh, it's not for me to say what should be on Broadway. What should be on Broadway is what sells on Broadway, I guess. Yes. If I, it, it certainly is theater. It's a, it's a stage production. It, what is unusual about it in that regard is the high degree of improvisation. 
because there is a huge amount of audience interaction. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's also what makes this show better than most magic shows I see is that a lot of the show is not just hiding the one trick. It also mm -hmm. does seem to involve uh, different skill sets that are in the moment, that are that do involve psychological manipulation and elements of mesmerism and uh, cold reading and things like that that are actually things that are happening and not just a disguise for something else that, that has already right, happened. Right, right. Um, and, and on the day I saw it, actually, the, those tricks went a bit awry a couple of times and he got things wrong that he was clearly used to getting right. Ah, um, uh -huh. It was a weird day. There were a lot of critics there. The energy was a little weird. Um, <laughs> but that, for me, made it more exciting. It, uh -huh. uh, it's like when a juggler drops a ball. Oh, you know? I love that. Yeah. Suddenly you're like, wow, remember all those balls he didn't drop? Uh, and so yes. the, uh, the, the, the magic show aspect has this element of risk and spontaneity in Darren Brown's version of it that, that it sometimes doesn't with mentalism for me. And, and he is such a confident showman. It is a, you, you can watch people's faces during that show and they're delighted. Mm -hmm. It's a delightful evening of theater. And, you know, some of it is improvisational nightclub stuff and some of it is straight up theater. <laughs> it is designed very carefully. Mm -hmm. It is rehearsed very carefully. It only works under certain circumstances. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think for sure, it, it, at least it has a, a, a lot of very theatrical elements. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. For coming from, like, well, like, for... for Four blocks away. <laughs> Eight blocks away. Eight blocks away. Uh, and I think, uh, yes, we should totally, you should drop by again. I would love to. I'm, Thank I'm, you for I'm having me. I'm putting out an invite right now because the other two are not there to stop me. Yes. I'm just so, going to start showing up every week. Just, just show up. You, just hang out in the lobby looking sad. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, I, Adam's here again. I think we need to <laughs> put him do? on. What do we do? We need to put him on. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you. All right. And now we're resuming the regular Two out of three on the aisle. Uh, Terry's bike on the mic. Uh, it's a weird podcast today, but I think it's gonna. We're gonna make it work. We're gonna make it work. We're gonna call it the Franken episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think it'll be on the list of like, what is it like next year's American Theater Magazine's list of like craziest podcasts. Like this is like top three, I think. Um, and actually, my goal always is to, for listeners who listen to us in their car, my goal is to make them like go through red lights, you know, laughing so hard they lose control of their vehicle, but they're unharmed. Um, so that is my goal. Anyway, uh, favorite segment, as always, is our picks and disses of uh, things that we've seen recently. Uh, Terry, what is on your list? Well, I... Uh saw a few days ago uh, a production, a revival of, of Bernard Shaw's Caesar and Cleopatra, which has not been done in New York in more than 40 years. Uh, if you follow the New York theater scene, you probably know who did it. Uh, David Stoller uh, is the man who runs Project Shaw, which does uh, one-shot readings of all Shaw's plays. But now this is the third season in a row that he has done a fully staged Shaw production off-Broadway at Theater Row. Uh, last year it was Heartbreak House. This year it was his adaptation of Caesar and Cleopatra. Uh, David probably knows more about Shaw than anybody else in America. Uh, but he's also learned from putting these readings together with minimal rehearsal how to do a text-driven production 
of a texty play, which all Shaw's plays are, and give it real theatrical life. Um, he's uncanny at it. And um, last year's Heartbreak House was, I thought, the best production of that tricky play I ever saw. This year, Caesar and Cleopatra, a, a play that I admit I have never seen in the theater, was last done on Broadway in 1977 with Rex Harrison and Elizabeth Ashley, mm. and it's still closed after 12 performances. And, of course, the reason is that Caesar and Cleopatra is not a romance. It's not a Shakespearean play. It is one of Shaw's plays of ideas. Uh, it's a conversation piece in which the worldly and world-weary Caesar teaches the kittenish Cleopatra how to be a hard-headed political realist, and it is a comedy. Um, and David, that, that's just putting the ball right down the center of his alley. He knows exactly how to do that. Uh, he, he cast uh, as Caesar uh, Robert Cuccioli, and as Cleopatra, a young woman named Teresa Avia Lim, who is a real find. I mean, she is a... I, I mentioned that, that Cleopatra is written as somebody who starts out as Lolita and ends up uh, being a political realist, and uh, uh, this young woman made that transition with such skill and elegance. I was, I was agog. Uh, the play has been moved forward, it's situated in a modern-day archaeological dig. It's done in a theater with 88 seats. The costumes are simple. The diction is crisp and clear. And if you've never seen one of Shaw's conversation pieces and you want to know how they work and how they ought to be done, go see this one. Mm, okay, well, I <laughs> before I go to my, my pick, I have to say that I... I, I did see that production i am do not share your enthusiasm i was bored senseless uh, <laughs> by the i god i i i, I want to leave this on on a positive note so I'll, I'll i'll i will see the floor on that one but i i do not share your enthusiasm on that but then you know what actually i saw a show that was so bad that it made me think back fondly about Caesar and Cleopatra, which at least had some ideas in it, um, because I saw Jack Thorne's Sunday at the Atlantic. Jack Thorne um, is kind of famous right now for adaptations, actually. Um, well, working with, again, branded properties, uh, he worked on the Harry Potter play on Broadway, and he also did the adaptation of the Swedish um, vampire movie, Let the Right One In, uh, the Harry Potter play I found so dramatically inert. I just, it's so bad. I was so bored for like 75 hours or whatever, however long it lasts. I think um, that was the stated running time, yeah. Yeah, 75 hours. Running time, 75 hours. You will never go home. Um, but Sunday is mind-bogglingly awful. It is a bunch of... Post-grad students, except they're all 21 or 22, so clearly they went to grad school when they were 14, and they have a book group, and they're discussing an entire book, I, I, as, you know, people do, young people do, they discuss entire, um, it makes no sense, and then there's an incredibly awful uh, situation where there's uh, a young woman in her apartment where the book discussion is taking place and her neighbor coming and it turns out that the neighbor is, has been kind of stalking her. And this is meant to be kind of a meet cute 
thing. And <laughs> I'm going to say that every woman in the audience did not find that cute at all. Because when you have a guy who's kind of stalking you and he lives in your building, it is not a meet cute. Um, very, very completely bizarre. Uh, it is so dramatically flaccid. I cannot believe that nobody reading this thought, you know, I, I call this the, the tyranny of sunken costs, where you, you go ahead with a show and, and, it's, and it's completely out of control and you can't stop it. So you're like, what are we going to do to save it? We have to put it on. It's, it's let it in the season. Oh, I know. Let's add some dancing because we don't know what else to do because the character don't make any sense. Oh, my God. It, I actually recommend it for students of dramaturgy and directing as an example of like, okay, what can you do when you have nothing to work with? Unbelievable. Like, seriously unbelievable. And the Atlantic is a, is a big off-Broadway house. An what was this doing? Yeah. Insane. Insane. It, it was shocking. It was shocking. I don't think I'm the only one to think that, by the way. I'm not like having a moment. I'm not having a Vincentelli moment of like rolling around like Linda Blair, uh, you know, throwing up green bile, but um, it's, it's, it, it was, I could not believe what I was saying. Seriously. I, I could not believe it. I, I feel my, 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 my heartbeat is rising. I'm like, I'm, steam is coming out of my ears. Um, anyways, <laughs> this may be a well, good you, time you've to certainly, stop. You've certainly, you've simplified my weekend to come. <laughs> oh, uh, right. I don't think I'll make time for that one. Um, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I know I keep saying that, but I, I see 225 shows a year and, and usually I'm like, okay, well, this is this this didn't work. But this, I was just like, what, what, what do you think you're doing? And the, you know, the what, what's most annoying is that the cast was really good, uh, but they have so little to work with. I mean, they're all young actors that I really want to see in other shows, and they will get other shows. They will move on. I know. I'm I'm very optimistic about that. They were they were really good, but Jesus, and. Oh, anyway, I'm going to stop now. I'm going to stop now. I am. I'm Before always Before I say struck. things I will regret, as I've already, I've already done that. But yeah, the the actors are the great professionals of theater, as the playwrights very often are not. Uh, they're the when something goes wrong, uh, look to the playwright first. Is my uh, my feeling. Mm -hmm. So uh, true. And that's all we have time for today. I know. Uh, thank God. Uh, I have to stop. I have yeah, to stop. right. I'm Just in at the, the nick of time. Oh. Um, <laughs> Thanks, thanks again to our guest, Adam Feldman. Adam, I'm sorry I couldn't share the mic with you, but I know we'll have you back another time. In oh. the meantime, he, he, I am he's, a, he's, he's already, he's behind the green, the, the, the glass door. He's, he's banging to get, to, let, to get back in. Um, well, anyway, anyway, uh, farewell to you all. I'm Terry Teachout. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. And our producer is Erica Huang. Hey, did I pronounce that right? Okay. <laughs> that was my first time. I want to get it right. <laughs> Thank you, Erica. We can be followed by you on Twitter at Three on the Isle. And you can write to us at Three on the Isle at gmail.com. Please let us know what other topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, and don't forget to leave a review or a rating on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks for listening, and we'll be with you again soon on the aisle. <laughs>